So this is the third conversation that we're having in our conversation series. Took a little bit of a break because I was on vacation a little bit, but um, I wanted to bring uh, you guys in to to kind of add the voice into the conversation to, uh, I, I would say, balance the scales, not balance the scales in the conversations we've had so far, but more uh, in culture, really, to, to give a perspective um, from, a, a, from a, a law enforcement perspective in, in a lot of the things that are going on in our society today. It, it's kind of like when, when I go to the store, I like the thing that's measuring the weight of my fruit to be at zero, <laughs> you know, and not be weighed down. It, and we're all weighed down right. by our own experiences, by our own sure. preferences, by our own leanings, all that stuff. Like we all come to any conversation with with a unique experience that um, that can affect and does affect the way that we that we interpret things. And so uh, it seems as though in this cultural climate that we're in, um, the the perspective from law enforcement, uh, I, I haven't personally seen a lot of content out there um, that gives voice to people who have experience in law enforcement. And that's a world that I I have no expertise in. I've listened to like two podcasts. And so I'm not an expert by podcast. Like, yep. I don't think that exists, you know, but right. anyways, so I wanted to bring you guys in. Can you, can you kind of introduce yourselves and kind of give a brief bio of what your experience in law enforcement uh, is or has been? So we're all, we're both going to do the point. <laughs> back yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so I've been with the Iowa division of criminal investigation for 22 years. Um, and all that means is we're the kind of the investigative side of the state police in Iowa. Uh, so when okay. you see state troopers riding around in um, brown uniforms, we are uh, at the same level as air, only we don't wear uniforms. We wear suits and business clothes and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then we investigate uh, anything that, you know, we're tasked with investigating. So my particular assignment within that is I'm assigned to what's called our major crimes unit. And all that means is that we come alongside local law enforcement agencies and assist them with any type of major cases they have. We do a lot of death investigations um, for smaller agencies. Um, and a large part of what we do with that is we investigate almost all of the officer-involved shootings in the state of Iowa because we are, we don't work for any local agency. So mm. we're the kind of the objective third party that can come in and review an incident and determine was an appropriate level of force did it meet mm. what the you know the united states supreme court has said this is a, a reasonable use of force within that construct so that's so you're you you particularly not maybe not exclusively but officer involved shootings i mean that's like uh, to say your bread and butter seems to trivialize it because it's a really serious thing but yeah. like you're very acquainted with that yes. world interesting yeah, I, I didn't so. know that was yep part of it that's yep. that's great uh, my name is Jeff Young. I introduced myself. There you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, my experience has been really uh, start out with the in the California Department of Corrections, um, and subsequently moved to uh, parole. Um, okay. I did work probation parole here in Iowa for <clears throat> a few years before going back to California and finishing uh, finishing up my career there as a parole mm -hmm. agent and uh, assistant unit supervisor there. So, gotcha. How many years did you do that? Um, a total of uh, the parole or the whole just, thing? Just the whole thing. The whole thing. A uh, total of about 25 years, 27 wow. years, somewhere in there. 
Wow. Yeah. Man. So that's a long time. <laughs> You're not. You don't. You don't look old though. Yeah. <laughs> You're holding that well. I, I, yeah. I keep the gray off it's, until you it's pull there. your glasses yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I pull my glasses out slightly. So, yeah. so, so my experience uh, has been mostly with individuals that have uh, committed a crime and been uh, sentenced to prison, um, the, the, the correctional officer side. And then the parole agent side uh, was individuals after they'd served their sentence. In California, it was a mandatory three-year parole attached to every uh, parolee. Mm. When you get out of prison, you have a three-year parole period in which to do. You can get released off parole early if you adhere to the guidelines and, and whatever, but for that, you're going to get basically three years of supervision, and mm -hmm. for other issues such as sex offenders and stuff like that, it could go out to five years or, you know, lifetime, sure. uh, depending on the level of, of uh, crime committed. So, gotcha. So, yeah, and so I work different cases. I've had general caseloads. I've had uh, sex offender caseloads were tracking sex offenders on GPS, mm. um, and our caseloads were roughly about 40 to 1. So I would have 40 different sex offenders that I tracked wow. every month. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah. And so I had gang member caseloads, so where the majority of my guys were uh, Northern. Uh, Latino gang members, mm. uh, Northern Structure or New Esta Familia or, um, you know, just some of the Southern gangs too um, that, that moved up north. A um, mm. few of the the street gangs that you hear about, Crips and Bloods and sure. Pyrus and all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> those were all sprinkled in in the caseload. But the area that I was in was uh, for, for gangs and things like that was predominantly Hispanic. Mm. So, so a lot of history uh, dealing with the gang members. And stuff. Wow. Yeah. So, twenty. How many years? Twenty-two in July. Twenty-two and twenty. Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. So mm -hmm. almost fifty years right. combined of law enforcement experience across a wide spectrum of areas of expertise. Yep. Okay. So and Jeff is uh, just. He's hitting the tip of the iceberg. We went out to, to dinner with him and Joe. This is, I think, last summer, and was just mining out some of his experience, particularly in California. And oh, I'm just, dude! I'm sitting here just going. <laughs> so he's just tip. He's just he's just giving you a little taste. Yeah, too. Well, that's not I, empty flattery. That's yeah. funny because I had the same feeling because we grabbed lunch maybe right. a month ago, a few weeks ago, something like that, and I walked away thinking the same thing. I'm like. That guy's seen a lot. Uh-huh. Like he's seen a lot of different mm -hmm. things. So, so with with fifty almost fifty years of law enforcement experience, um, I think something that would be really helpful, I know for me and probably for the people who are gonna watch or listen to this, is uh, as you as you scroll through your news feed or watch YouTube or watch the news or whatever, and the headline pops up, okay. Uh, white officer kills black unarmed man, right? So, and in, in insert the name in there, George Floyd, uh, uh, whatever you want, Michael Brown, you know, it, irregardless of the name, what's the first thing that goes through your mind as you read that headline? Because it seems as though uh, things are often presented uh, in, in an, an inflammatory way, in, in a way that is meant to stir up emotion. And I think in some ways that's, a, that's very appropriate. Like people dying uh, in any sense is, is, is tragic. You know, death itself is tragic. But mm -hmm. from a law enforcement perspective, uh, 
what do you guys, what initially goes through your mind as, as you watch maybe mainstream news or scroll through social media and see all these opinions and all these statements and all this stuff uh, in, those, in those instances? Yeah. I, know that's a, I know that's a big question. Yeah. It's case specific, first? I'm sure. You want me to bat at it? Or? You, you step up to the plate, Jeff. Okay. Well, um, the first thing that I uh, think about is I, I need all the information. Um, and typically, you know, whether it's news stations or newspapers or whatever, you know, they make their living off of inciting folks getting you interested in whatever they're saying mm. and getting clicks right gotcha. and so you know you know you if you if you make your judgment based on seeing a clip of a news station <laughs> um, you're gonna be in trouble mm. because with you know you have to look at the whole picture as to what uh, occurred in the whole thing now are there situations where things were are done and it's like wow you really can't get <laughs> You can't, the only thing you can take away from that is a bad situation. Mm. However, there um, are situational things that, that happen that may cause things to escalate to a point. And at that point, you're talking about split second decisions mm. that need to be made. And, you know, uh, it's, it's just a tough call. And so whatever uh, the situation I, I kind of like to get all the the information first before mm. even passing judgment on whether or not that was good or bad. You know, it, it never ends up good, but you know, when mm. you're talking about a life being taken, right. but whether things were done appropriately or uh, there's some misconduct. Mm. Yeah, I, to I totally affirm. And again, it's not like an empty affirmation of what. Jeff said, but you know, when you ask the question, when you first read that, uh, from a law enforcement perspective, my just, and this has probably just been within the last few years, my head just almost immediately drops because mm. of the headline initially, mm. because there is so much uh, more to the story in just the little snippet of video that we often see. And that, that question mm -hmm. you asked is, is probably the one that I've, I've even challenged my kids with is to always go, I need more information before mm -hmm. I, I, it would be appropriate for me so far away, hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away, to suddenly make a snap judgment on what happened in this particular mm -hmm. case because right. they're so complex. Right. And I, I'm sure we'll get into it you know, at some point during the discussion, but there is such a level of, and uh, Jeff described it really well, of split-second decisions. And that's not, I don't think that's offered up from an officer's perspective is some type of dramatic thing we have to say or to cast mm. drama in it. It's mm -hmm. just what's true right. when people who do bad things to each other, and you can remove law enforcement from that, when people in general do bad things to each other, right. you have seconds to determine what's going on. Mm. Um, and there's a, a whole lot that goes in there. So, so really needing more information. Mm. I, in almost every case, I'm always like, I want to know so much more about this case that I don't think I can get from a, mm. a you know, a 20 second news clip. Do you, like do you think so? So let's let's take so the the instance of of the day currently is is George Floyd, right? And so 
we watched that clip, and um, and I believe it it took some time for those offers for those officers to be arrested, right? And and there was a lot of outrage over that because you watch that clip, and man, I just I have a hard time doing what you said, like mm-hmm. like going like I need more information. Like watching that clip, I go. I'm not sure what more information I would need in order to come to a different conclusion as to how horrible that was, you know? And so can you explain from the, from the law enforcement side, why it would take more than like 30 seconds to, to go to those officers who were involved in that situation and, and arrest them? Like, what, what's the rationale behind that? You bet. I think I'd, 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 I'd spin it kind of on its head a little bit. Um, we'll have questions. I use a case study when people will come in, uh, you know, like a student will come in and job shadow with me. And the closest you can get from a job shadow is come in and sit with me for three hours and I'll show you what I do, but then we'll walk through some old case files. Mm. And one of the ones we walk through is a homicide um, where the suspect or the ultimate defendant um, did something horrible to his mom, killed his mom, and then called 911 and said I did it and so you could look at that and go okay why did you even get called then you've got Mm. him confessing over the phone right and you've got her there so why not just put you know guilty on it send it on its way Mm. and the the complexity that goes into particularly an investigation where somebody's life is taken either um you know, a, a criminal homicide or a, a justified use of force or what we saw with George Floyd. Um, death investigations are just inherently complex because it's not just that snapshot in time of the, the minutes that the officer got there, but we have to look at what happened before. What, mm. what led them to be there? The question I always encourage people to ask, and it doesn't mean that it mitigates uh, what the officers did, but the question I always ask is why were the officers there in the first place? particularly within the narrative that seems to be being pushed out of, of white police officers. And, and I would even pull back police officers and white police officers in general. Now we're to a, a place where it's just police officers, period, are kind of on the hunt for black men. And so I always go, well, ask the first question of why were the officers there in the first place? Mm-hmm. And within all of that, there's just a complexity that, that comes out of that where um, you're, you're talking about interviewing witnesses and trying to come to a, a, a firm understanding of all the facts of the case um, so that you can make the right decision. Um, because if, if you don't, we shouldn't rush to judgment on anything. Um, and so gathering all those case facts, particularly in a death investigation, they just, they just take time. Hmm. And it's not, I don't think it's at the expense of anybody trying to drag their feet, but if the if the, it was flipped the other direction, society wants us to take our time, even in criminal homicides, you know, where it's the person that calls 911. Those take days and weeks to do. Sometimes there's a quick arrest in 24 hours, but oftentimes you can work a homicide case for, you know, months before you actually get, and know pretty soon who you think did it, but you have to get to that case where you can you can do a criminal charge that will then hold up in court. So that just, mm. it takes time. So that's that's part of the equation. Right, excellent. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, and the thing I think also, you know, uh, as you said, reports and things like that, you know, an individual was killed. And so there's a medical examiner that's going to determine mm-hmm. the cause of death. And so that's not like, hey, just 
go down and do the paperwork and bring it back and tell us mm, what the actual great. cause of death is. I mean, there's some medical examiner that has to examine mm. a body and come up with the determination as to why that individual died. It's not done overnight. Mm. Um, also, when you think about the district attorney deciding what charges to bring, and if they're going to bring charges, they're not going to bring charges that they may feel, hey, well, this is on a whim. We may win this in court. <laughs> they don't go to court just to try an individual and see if they can win. Uh, it's about this individual we believe committed this crime or broke these laws, and this is what we're going to charge him with. What else goes with that? What, what else are we going to charge? So I think it gets a lot more complex. There's obviously deals made. The individual may come in and plead guilty to that thing and for a lesser charge and whether or not the DA wants to go with that or mm. you know that kind of thing. So there's a lot more uh, that, that goes into the process. Um, and so you can't just, oh, he did it. We saw the video. Go arrest him. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Sure. So. Jeff, can you, can you kind of explain, because you gave a lot of really helpful insight and perspective into as we were talking over lunch the other day uh the thing that the thing that was difficult for me particularly in the george floyd uh video um and the way that the news was portraying that was that was that race immediately got inserted into the conversation right where it where it was it was as though george floyd had been killed because he was black right. because this white guy was racist you know right. and and you had you had some helpful things to say kind of as even you like you saw that you processed that like like how do you begin to interpret uh when race is inserted into these scenarios while at the same time i have to believe that there are cases where that is the case right. how, how do you how do you practice discernment in in those kinds of things well you know for me i i review or i look at the situation as it's happening i you know when I see that Floyd situation, um, I see, I'm gonna step out on a limb here a little bit, I see more of an arrogance than I do a racial mm. issue. Mm. Um, I see the crowd saying, hey, he can't breathe and whatever, and I see this arrogance in the officer with his hands in his pocket and leaning on this guy. Mm. Um, and there's some checks and balances in that. And the, 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 the hard part, uh, for me watching it as a person and as a person that, 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 that has been in situations similar to that in law enforcement, um, to, to not have the other officers that are standing there hmm. say to you, hey man, <laughs> let me take this. Because we had, it was kind of checks and balances in the different places that I've worked where if for some reason I was not focused uh, that somebody else would would step in and say hey I got this mm. and then you you get you step back and gain your focus yeah so um, the the tough part and if I could bring in the the race issue that that comes up um, for African Americans is that you know you say there's one bad officer if you had a hundred officers there's and you had one bad officer in there, that doesn't make the whole bunch bad. What African-Americans look at is that one officer would do something wrong uh, or similar to the Floyd case in front of the other 99 and nobody will say anything. So they mm -hmm. say all officers mm -hmm. are bad. Mm 
Mm. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so that's where you, that's, that's looking at it from hmm. the stuff that I hear in the African-American community as why there's such a frustration because they say that one cop is not bad. All of them are because they stood there and watched him do that mm. and they said nothing. Hmm. So either w they approve of what he was doing, you know, or, mm. you know, they just have no feelings as to why, who he was doing it to. You know what I mean? So, right. so it, that, that's one of the things that makes it a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. um, again, when, when I look at a situation like that, I don't um, see that as being a racial issue. I, 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 I see the media and all of these things dumping this stuff on top. Um, and I really do think that it, it, there's a political agenda that's tied to the situation that has occurred. Um, and you know we won't we won't go into that, but mm. but this thing as far as it being <clears throat> a racial issue, I, again I think it was more of an arrogance than it was anything mm. racial. So so as we man, everything that you just said is super helpful. I um, I was listening to a podcast and I said I was going to recommend it, so I'll recommend it now. It's uh, Malcolm Gladwell. The uh, it's revisionist history descend into the particular season four episode seven um one of the things that he talks about in there and i forget the guy's name that he talks about it sounds like he has a very similar job to you and so uh one of the things he was talking about was the was the ferguson case with michael brown where uh there were actually two investigations that came out the same day one about the particular instance with michael brown and one about the ferguson police department i think he called it a uh patterns and practices investigation or something like that um, where the one investigation on the instance with Michael Brown uh, concluded that that uh, you would probably know the language better basically that the officer it was uh, a justified use of it force. was a justified use yep. of force the second investigation into the Ferguson Police Department as a whole over the course of the next several months uh, uh, had some level of a conclusion where uh, where the police department was wasn't acting rightly in the sense that that they were exploiting exploiting particular aspects of the community uh, for financial to, to pad the the uh, the budget for the city stuff like that where it, it was almost like uh, if, if you had two sides both were right and it depended on which investigation you read right <laughs> like mm -hmm. it was like that instance justified use of force but yes, there's a problem here. And these two things aren't necessarily connected, but you can see how someone would maybe not respect the authority of the police in light of reading this investigation, while at the same time, uh, not going the hands up, don't shoot narrative, like all this stuff where it's like, nah, you gotta read this report as well. Like with those two things, and again, I'm not doing justice to any of that whole thing, because. Again, I'm, I'm ignorant in a lot of ways, especially compared to you guys. But in light of that, like, how do you how do you think through that? Where it's like, there's instances here where there certainly was justified use of force. Uh, as you talk, as you think through, like, like systemic racism or uh, 
at least at least things that make it look like there there might be particular cities with law enforcement that are maybe exploiting particular parts of their communities for financial gain or whatever it is, whatever those reasons are. And, and that podcast lays out a little bit more. Um, how do you guys think through that, right? I, and I'm sure it's I'm sure it's so case by case. You can't make broad generalizations, but just what are your own thoughts on that from your experience? Yeah, the <clears throat> from the the use of force. We'll start with the Michael Brown one. You as far as that particular thing, um, when you talk about a use of force investigation, there's so much that goes into it. Um, in, in and I don't know if we'll get there in this conversation, but one of the things and what I within um, everything that's happened, I would I would say even it basically started for me back in the Michael Brown when that started to develop because of of the circumstances that were going on as far as uh, when, um, I can't remember the officer that shot and killed him, it was Darren? Wilson. Darren Wilson, yeah, yeah, thank you. When he decided to, you know, to, to use his firearm against Michael Brown, everything that went into that is there is a, um, the, the, the ability to understand use of force and the physiology behind it and reaction times and things like that mm. is paramount to understanding is this a justified use of force mm. and so within within um, applying all the things that we know within the physiology um, that goes into a use of force interaction as well as what our Supreme Court has said this is this is this is the uh, template that we're going to use to determine whether or not this was uh, an appropriate use of force all of those things um, go into analyzing what happened with Michael Brown, and you can come to a fairly clear conclusion on one sense, like you said. The, the investigating a systemic issue within a police department is so much more complex, and it mm. wouldn't, I don't know how much it would look like or parallel a, an investigation, a criminal investigation into, into a use of force, mm. um, because systemic issues. Um, I don't know how you vet out an appropriate, you know, systemic issue that's going on within a particular department because the, it's so much more broad than just the police department. You'd have mm. to focus in on the city at large and um, population densities. And that's not an excuse for being um, inappropriate with how you handle police and citizen interactions. But there's so much more that goes on from a societal perspective that um, it feels like, and I know that feelings are often liars, but it feels like from a law enforcement perspective, law enforcement is the easy scapegoat to say, here's where the systemic issue is involved, right, right. when the reality is it's much broader than that. The question mm. that I think we have to ask as a society is, um, why is it that when a, um, a, you know, a, a young white boy rides through on a bike in a neighborhood, that nobody bats an eye, but a young African-American man rides through on a, on a, a bike and people take a second look. Those mm. are societal things that we have to tease out and go, why do we do that? Where, where does that come from? Mm. Um, because within all of that, it, I think it plugs in the systemic issues um, that are there. So for me, this one's a lot less clear. The, the use of force because of some of the things we have, the physiology and then just the guidelines we've been given by, you know, the Constitution and our Supreme Court is much clearer for me. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's just because, you know, that one's way harder to try and discern. So I'm not going to worry <laughs> about that one. Sure. I'm going to stay right. focused over here. What are your thoughts, Jeff? Um, very similar. You know, I mean, I think it, it, it takes so much more to be able to determine the uh, systemic racism within a 
department because now you're talking about looking at every individual person. Um, you're talking about looking at, um, you know, all the records as mm. to, you know, how they handle those particular things. You're talking about, again, community. You're talking about, um, you know, the density of population in whatever areas. Um, um, yeah, it's just, it's just so much more goes into that than having guidelines. This is what uh, we consider good or righteous shoot or whatever it may be. And was this handled within these guidelines? Mm. So, you know, and, you know, being able to determine a person's heart on the other side as to whether or not there's systemic racism either within a person or whatever, some you can see by actions that doesn't tell every uh, all, uh, all the day-to-day -day interactions that you have with people in the community. Right. So, so that it's a it's a lot tougher to be able to mm. to uh, completely nail it down uh, as the systemic uh, racism. Sure. And, and what's yeah. what's often intertwined with that? You, this was really helpful to hear you say that, Jeff. Is that what's often intertwined within that is because of society at large and particularly poverty how it influences um, particularly in minorities when those when you get into impoverished areas um, that influences crime I mean it, it just does poverty is a huge influence of crime because mm -hmm. of you have a nihilism that exists within well I don't I'm just trying to live from day to day and so oftentimes the value of life goes way down when you're like I'm just trying to get through to tomorrow mm -hmm. which means if I got to go through you, I'm sorry, dude. It's not personal. It's just business. I'm just trying to get through from one day to the next. Hmm. Poverty breeds that. Within that, you have a level of crime where there are things that officers need to have, not at their disposal, but there's, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of things that officers need to have to try and prevent crime from happening. Looking at patterns, looking at what are some things that officers can look for to try and prevent crime from happening and a great example I heard is this is that um, one of the one of the I want to say one of the number one things but a lot of homicides take place in a hand-to-hand -hand interaction on a drug transaction it's not the guy oftentimes is driving around it's it's a it's hey I'm gonna I know I'm gonna I know Jake's got some dope that I want and mm -hmm. I don't have enough money to pay it and I brought a gun to the fight and Jake might not have it mm -hmm. so as soon as I do this hand-to-hand -hand where he thinks it's gonna be good I'm going to get there, I'm going to rob him, maybe shoot him and try and get away. So there's a lot of danger within that. Well, officers will look for activity that looks like hand-to-hand -hand type of activity to try and prevent that because they know that's a dangerous place. That's where a lot of homicides occur. Mm. Well, if they're looking for that in an area that there's just inherently a lot of crime and they see something that looks like a hand-to-hand -hand, and then they make an approach to try and prevent that, and it happens to have a minority population there. They might not necessarily be there because of the minority. They're they're not they're not just grabbing a couple you know black guys and trying to harass them. They're going off of hey this is a hand to hand you know interaction. I want to stop that. And within that, when that doesn't end up being the homicide or they try it, then it, it kind of gets pegged. It, those types of things are interwoven mm. into what officers are trying to do to prevent crime from happening. And unfortunately, those things get interlaced with, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word to kind of describe it in there, where you're, like the profiling word gets thrown mm -hmm. around a lot. Mm -hmm. And there, there is an appropriate profiling and there's an inappropriate profiling. 
Um, and, and the reason I, it, sometimes it might be one of those things where you go, is it ever appropriate to profile? Mm. Well, if a guy's walking up to a bank with a ski mask on and he's got something like this, I, I would hope that we would give law enforcement the freedom to profile that that looks inherently bad. Mm. Um, and so within that, there's a lot of things that are, are intertwined into an investigation of a police department or a law enforcement agency in terms of, is there a systemic issue? I mean, you, you're peeling back lots and lots and lots of layers right. and trying to determine what's an appropriate mm. uh, way. Because if 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 we if we end up being in a construct where we want law enforcement to be strictly reactive, where to, it's just not a good place to be. Mm. I mean, you want to. Yeah. I hope we're always trying to be proactive with preventing things. Because I right. don't know of, of a law enforcement officer. I, th I think there's guys that go into law enforcement that are adrenaline junkies. I don't think they last very long because I think you, when you see the real deal, you start you start to realize, ah, I don't need to see this. Right. So I say all that right. to say this, and I'll shut up here for a second because I, I would love Jeff to speak into it too, but um, when, when you, I don't know of a law enforcement officer, I think Jeff and I, I know between the two of us, we would go, if, if we were told tomorrow, hey, there's no more crime, uh, you guys can go do something else. We would both go, oh, thank goodness. I, I would <laughs> gladly go do that. If my phone never rang for the next 10 years of my life to go work another homicide, I would not bat an eye. I would go gladly do, do something else. Your phone else. rings a lot. Yeah, and I think most- And not at convenient times. No, it's, it's no. always off time. And I think most law enforcement would say, I wish we weren't needed. Mm, I, would, right. I would love it if we weren't. Absolutely. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I don't, that was a lot. Yeah. To kind of process through no that's that's interesting uh, that you made that analogy because I'm, I'm a product of that I uh, the eligibility to retire was at age 50 so I turned 50 on a Monday and that Friday I <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah. I long for that yeah. day Jeff yeah. I long for it so, Scott's so, not 50 yet so it was like Five I've, had <laughs> I've had enough I've had enough yeah you know one of the things that I, I like that you said definitely uh, about, you know, the challenges of being in the inner city neighborhood in impoverished neighborhoods. Um, I, I lived in an impoverished neighborhood, mm. and the one the sad thing about it is um, law enforcement. From the time that you're young, probably able to crawl, all that you're hearing about is bad cops, bad cops, bad cops, they're bad, they're mm -hmm. bad, they're bad. You don't get a sense of law enforcement is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Police officers are a good thing. Um, it's always, they're harassing people, they're blocking this person up, they're doing this. Even when the individual's out committing a crime, this guy's out selling heroin in the neighborhood, getting people addicted, you know, tricking girls out, you know, mm. that, that means sexually yeah, abusing yeah. them. All of those things are happening in your neighborhood. Your kid could be next that he approaches to sell this to, and please chase this guy down. He fights, does whatever, they get him in handcuffs, and you'll have people on the street screaming, let him go, why are you guys treating him like that? Mm. And it's because I think this this thing that is that is built into uh, poor communities is that police hate us mm. and they're always after us and they're trying to get us when that's not the case. Mm. 
Have I, living in those neighborhoods, seen some things that were questionable as an adult now looking back as far as law enforcement is concerned? Sure, I have. Um, was it unprovoked in the sense that, uh, hey, just walking down the street, law enforcement came up and grabbed this guy and just threw him on the ground and did whatever? I, I have not seen, in my experience, a cooperating individual get, uh, you know, physically harmed by law hmm. enforcement. Hmm. I think uh, it's usually as things blow out of proportion and, and you get to the resisting and mm. all of those things that start to happen mm. uh, where things go bad. Mm. So right or wrong, as far as the, 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 the person, in other words, you get pulled over, you don't have a driver's license, hey, I don't have a driver's license, hey, we're gonna impart in the car, this is your third time, you're, gonna, you're going to jail, hey, all right, well, I mean, if, if that was the case and it was like, okay, I'm going to jail, I know, I violated the law. This mm. is what the law says. That's it. Fine. That, that's what, if it was like that, I, I don't think you would have all the issues that you have. But, you know, a guy gets out of the car, he knows he has no driver's license. There's, there's dope in the car. And instead of taking that, I'm going to fight the officers and take off and run and jump through, you know, backyards and all this stuff and make them chase me. And whether I have a gun or a knife, I'm going to do what, you know, it, mm. it, it just gets blown out of proportion not from the law enforcement officer's side. You know, mm. he has a job to protect the community. And the majority of the time, that is, that is what is occurring. Mm. Um, again, something that you said, that Scott said earlier, was why are they there? Why are you being, why are you pulled over? Mm. Now, even in the law enforcement position, I've been pulled over before. Uh, 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 what is it? License, license plate light was out. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I cooperated. Mm. Um, okay, yeah, get that fixed, you know, uh, or here's a fix-it ticket. Yeah, okay, mm -hmm. well, I'll take care of that. Mm. I, think uh, I didn't get out of the car. I didn't argue. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Uh, you know, there, there was no big blowing out thing. So what I'm trying to say is, you know and I'm not speaking for every situation, what I'm, what I'm speaking to you is that, um, you know, if, if you do what you're supposed to, if you kind of just do what you're supposed to do, um, and you don't uh, get disrespectful, and you don't do whatever, or you don't escalate a situation, and yes, it's the officer's responsibility to also keep that thing and de-escalate uh, when possible, um, but, things could get blown out of proportion and go so far so fast when you have individuals that are unwilling to recognize mm. <laughs> that hey man I messed up I did something wrong and these are the consequences of my actions mm. as opposed to you're you're just trying to hold me down <laughs> you're mm -hmm. trying to keep me from being a human being so when you talk about the law enforcement side that that part for me um, I see it as a, you know, a crime. If you're committing a crime, understand what what's at stake here, mm. and don't be angry or frustrated if you're contacted by law enforcement and they say, "Hey, you committed a crime. This is mm. what we're going to do." Mm. You know, 
So uh, yeah, I think I maybe went off the rails no, on that. Well, no, I mean, good. I mean, you, Scott, you talk about reaction time. It's it's like that. It, the the thing the thing that I don't take into account um, and really honestly understand is 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 the nuances of those interactions mm -hmm. and everything that goes into I mean like you said you're talking about reaction time I mean you even play that game with your kids where you put your hands you know and try to slap it and yeah. it, it's amazing like mm -hmm. and you do it with adults I, I sometimes I'll, I'll play that game with Sarah just to make myself feel better about myself and like <laughs> you know because I'm faster but it is interesting how it's like like if you're the one initiating the action you're you're always one mm -hmm. step ahead and it's like right. milliseconds yeah. and that's what we're talking about here often in these situations is that these these are these are when you when we say split second decisions it's as split second as pull your hands away it, it it really is that you know right. and so um your, that, your action phrase there is perfect because it, and jeff can probably attest to this but one of the when when you get trained up in defensive tactics within law enforcement the phrase we hear a lot is action beats reaction every time. Mm -hmm. And the best analogy of that is just think of any sports analogy. The guy running down the field in the open field and the kicker is the only thing standing between him and the goal line. The guy running the ball has all the advantage because he knows where he's going. The kicker has no clue. That's why he, he looks like a Goomba when he's, yeah. he thinks he's going kind this like way. like a newborn giraffe out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, running on the Serengeti. And within That's that, a great description of that. It's, newborn giraffe. It's come so on, you newborn true. giraffe. Yeah. Come on, get your legs going. Yeah. And it's so true because the, the person dictating what's going to happen next is the person that has the advantage. And so... The reason that's so important to understand um, is that within an officer-citizen reaction, and, and we'll just use the analogy of, of the guy that's committing the crime that, that Jeff talked about, the guy that's selling heroin and an officer encounters him, and the, the guy's got, you know he's got dope on him, and maybe he's got a firearm with him. That guy, as he's being contacted by law enforcement, has every advantage because in his mind, he can do whatever he wants. He can immediately de-escalate and go, yep, you got me, I'll just, I'm going to take it. He could chirp it up, he could run, he could pull a firearm. And so within that, we have to have, and what's been built into our, um, to our system is, and by system I'm talking about what the Supreme Court is, the, the nine greatest legal minds that we've had in the mid-1980s came up with a case called Graham versus Connor, which kind of laid out, here's how we're gonna analyze what's a, a justified use of force. And within that, they realize that we as society get to look at these issues with kind of a hindsight is 2020 advantage. Right. Mm. We can take hours. And as an investigator, Jeff and I, we can take hours and hours to dissect everything that happened. The officer in the moment, he doesn't have that luxury. Mm. He's, he's trying, he's one, he's trying to make sure that the public is protected. Two, he's trying to make sure that his buddy is protected. Um, Three, he wants to go home at the end of the knife to his wife and his kids, or you know, if it's a female husband um, and kids and things like that. The last one is there is a the bad guy has some attention to it. Now he's lower on the totem pole as far mm -hmm. as making sure that you know things are done safely. But within all of those things, we've realized that you have to give officers. You kind of got to give them that advantage back. And what we do when we do that is we've been told we're going to afford you the opportunity where you don't have to think from a hindsight 20 you don't have to have every detail down you just have to be reasonable 
and where that where that's important is because that gives an officer a margin of error to make a mistake not mm -hmm. because he's trying to be abusive but he's he's trying to be safe mm -hmm. and when you talk about reaction times i mean the the hand slapping one is great we did this with my kids a couple weekends ago my kids and my nephews grab uh, one of those nerf guns that shoots the little golf ball pellet things mm -hmm. that i mean shoots really fast and there's a, a guy by the name of Dr. Bill Lewinsky who does use of force studies, I think up in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. He does this with actual firearms that have like paint pellets in them. Okay. But you can do it with your kids. And simple as this is you have, you have a bad guy and you have an officer. And the bad guy gets to stand with his gun right down at his leg. The officer gets to do the same. And the, in, the only instructions are, all right, bad guy, you can shoot to choose the you can shoot to choo choose to shoot the officer whenever you want, but officer you can't do anything until you watch him go first, and so you watch that play out even with kids. And every time, mm -hmm. the bad guy's getting his Nerf gun up and he's he shoot, and the other one's shooting back and everything like right. that. Then you take it up a level and you go, all right, this time we're going to give the officer a little bit more of an edge. We're going to let him have his firearm at the ready gun, which means it's out, but it's about here, but it's not pointed. So you're a little bit closer. Mm. The reaction time gets a little bit better, but he's still getting shot first most of the time. Maybe they trade off rounds at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is you have him go, now you point it square at his chest, right? This is the officer. You point it almost as if you know the guy has a gun, you got to be ready, but you still can't do anything until the bad guy goes first. And maybe you'll get them shooting at the same time, which hmm. is not what we want our officers because then officers become disposable. And I know I've used this phrase mm -hmm. in some of our elder team. Um, I don't think we want a society of disposable police officers because I don't know of anything in my life that's disposable that I value. I don't, right. you know, I invite important people over, friends and family, I don't like, I got this amazing disposable coffee cup. I got it for you. <laughs> and so here's here's the kicker with all that is the very last one we do is this one. And this is the one that this is the one that kind of makes you I don't know, maybe this is too sappy. It makes your heart melt a little bit is I've done this I did this with my nephews as I told I told the bad guy one. I just pulled him off to the side and I was like, "All right, we've done this three times. This time, instead of shooting, I just want you to put your hands up in the air." Right? After this has all been built up and everything like mm -hmm. that. And every time even when he's put his hands up in the air, the officer is shot back. Hmm. And what what we're creating in a society right that is that if you right now we would look at that and go that officer murdered that that right. man. Right. And from a use of force perspective, we're negating all the other three levels that we just went through because of everything that officer is trying to react to in the moment. Is that just because this happened does not necessarily mean that that was a homicide, if, if I'm saying that mm -hmm. the right way. Right. And all of those, all of those things have to be understood because if we don't, if, if society chooses not, if, if we move further down the road, which right now we are, um, is if we're starting to call instances like that homicide, we're at a really untenable place as far as uh, having a sustainable law enforcement capacity. We're, we're building tolerances too tight on law enforcement where you just humanly cannot expect a human being to be able to react yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Man, that was like super helpful. Uh, one of the things that's been uh, put out there, and, and honestly, I don't know if it's true or not, is uh, uh, there's like a meme out there where it's like, it, it's got the different 
uh, the different amounts of hours it takes to train to be different occupations, you know, mm -hmm. and and one of the things that that it states is that you need more hours of training to be a barber in most states than you do to be a police officer. Okay, one, I don't know if that's true, so clear that up for me, whether that's true or not. <laughs> uh, and two, as it relates to training, like like what does what does that look like? Because to be a police officer, to be in law enforcement, with all of those factors, I go. I, I would really want that person to be well equipped to do that job. Uh, one of the things that's swirling around in this conversation is inadequate training. Uh, would you say that there's adequate training for police officers? Uh, would you say that there's not? I mean, clearly we could always use more training. Like, are we in an in-between there? Like, what are, what are your thoughts on, on the state of, of training of law enforcement currently? I'm going back and forth like <laughs> You guys can arm wrestle for it. Hey, he'd win. <laughs> yeah, he would. He'd win. <laughs> he'd yeah, training is a, um, it's such a critical piece from this. So I'll speak to that. One of the first things that you asked for. So when I went through, and this was 22 years ago, we went from July until the beginning of November. So I don't know what that is, four, four and a half months. Um, and we were, we were at the academy from Monday through Friday. Um, you're there the entire time, and all it is is you're being trained up to, to, to have the basic police training. And that is everything from motor, motor vehicle law to, um, you know, driving a vehicle uh, to firearms to how do you interact, how do you write reports, how do you interact with it. There's so much that goes into it because law enforcement is so much more than even just the interaction on the side of the road, particularly nowadays within you know, you are a family counselor, you're a mental health expert, you're an mm. expert on what types of narcotics people, I mean, there's so much more that's uh, going into it. Right now, I think our academy on the, on the Department of Public Safety, I think is at 22 weeks of training. Um, and that's not just, hey, you're on an online class, you're physically there and they're, they're taking through all those things. After that, you're always having ongoing training and it, it differs from department to department as far as how many times a year you train in defensive tactics, firearms, driving, things like that. And then you have ongoing, you know, modules of training, um, you know, as, as things start to get discovered, like the excited delirium within, that was something I don't remember coming out when I first came through. I don't know if you remember, but it's something within the last five, 10 years, that's a new thing to discover. And all that is, is that when people um, are high on certain types of uh, narcotics, um, they can get to the place where if you don't respond to them appropriately and put them in a position after they're handcuffed, um, they could asphyxiate themselves. They mm. could die. And mm. for a long time, law enforcement didn't realize that's what was going on. It was just straight up, oh, this guy drove, died of a drug overdose or was a heart mm. attack. Um, and so mm. there wasn't a lot of care placed in how do we, how do we take care of this person? which is an interesting irony because you're, you're being asked to care for a person who most likely oftentimes has done great violence to somebody else or to you, and then you're expected to turn around and care for them, which it should be that way. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever, nobody should mm -hmm. argue that it shouldn't be that way. Right, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Totally secular, uh, 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 not analogy but line, but from the old movie Roadhouse back in like the 80s <laughs> or 90s or whatever. You'll have to watch it sometime, Jake. I was born, <laughs> I was born in 88, yeah. sorry. But anyway, you, you be nice. <laughs> Right up to a time where there's you, you, you don't need to be nice anymore. Yeah, right. um, but within that, you're, you, all of those things that law enforcement is discovering are, are part of that ongoing training mm. and how to respond to people in that way. And it's, it's, it's not a moving target, but you're always learning more 
about what's going on. Mm. Now, is is training getting better? I think it is, but there's also a piece to it where the everything that's going on right now, I don't think more training is going to to fix because the fix the fix that we're seeing right now isn't within do officers need to get better should those tolerances become tighter we just have we have a phenomenal misunderstanding as a society on what use of force looks like and you said something at the very beginning which is really it's an ironic thing is that <clears throat> when an officer takes another person's life um, in in the course of their duties the courts even realize it's a really ironic thing. It kind of cuts against the grain of what we're asking officers to do. You're like, well, aren't you peace officers? Aren't you supposed to protect people and stuff like that? Well, within that, we recognize that some people are doing bad things to other people, and sometimes their life has to be taken as a result of, of whatever that mm-hmm. is. And it's a really mm-hmm. ironic thing. That part is becoming, I think, less understood. And so this isn't an attempt. I don't. I don't feel it's an attempt to say. Oh no, we don't. We're good. We know what we're doing. We don't need more training. Come on, mm-hmm. are you serious? It's a. These things that are happening aren't aren't an area of training. This is because we as society are not. We don't understand what's going on within use of forces or use of force incidents, and there's a, a gross misunderstanding um, of. Um, there's been a not a gross misunderstanding. There's been a gross. Uh, mischaracterization of of officer involved shootings um, particularly as it pertains to black men um, mm-hmm. and so that's the part that I think needs to it's not a training issue that needs to be understood and, and identified mm. right, right. I don't know would you agree disagree yeah, no, you can no. feel free to p- push back too. oh Jeff, no no like no um, I do I definitely uh, agree with that um, you know I think um, what was the question again no yeah, yeah. Training. Just yeah, like, training. Um, is it enough? Yeah, is it not a training enough? issue? I, I, I got to training issue? what you were saying, and my brain started going to, to <laughs> other things there that were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah say this. Um, yeah, the training issue, you know, I'm, as a pro agent, I went to a 16-week live-in academy. Um, you got to go home on the weekends. We basically went through the laws of arrest and all those different things that are related to my thing was a little bit different than strictly law enforcement because not only am I res- I'm responsible for this individual who gets out of prison, who's on parole, uh, and, and, and the reintegration of that individual back into society to, to stop this revolving door of recidivism rate. Mm. So, so I, I'm looking at this individual uh, and I'm trying to protect the public, and I'm trying to get a feel for where this guy is on whether it's drug recovery, um, gang involvement, um, where's he going to live, get him a job, plug him into services, you know, all of these types of things that I have to constantly refer guys to different programs and get him in this and that, whatever, trying to get this guy to change his life. And meanwhile, this individual back into the same community, he is known on the street, he just got mm. out of prison. His homeboys are there. The life is waiting for him that he left. Uh, and we're talking about taking that individual and making a new life out of the life that he already has mm. and where he's at. With like the same ingredients. With the same ingredients. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I hand you ingredients for a chocolate cake and I tell you to b- bake me a strawberry cake. Mm. <laughs> 
with the same ingredient. All of God's chocolate. Do it. Yeah. You Do know it, what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and, and so that, that was a big, that's what I was kind of tasked with in hmm. my thing. And so, um, you know, you, the, the law enforcement side came about as I was, uh, you know, hey, guy's not following these rules. He's giving me dirty drug tests. You know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrest you for this or whatever. Or, you know, whether we get a call from local law enforcement and say, hey, um, we just got a description of this individual who fits this guy on your caseload. He just robbed somebody here. So now I'm out there and mm -hmm. I'm looking for this guy on the street and he's got a new crime and the whole bit. So, so there was there was a lot of different dynamics that went into the way that I had to do this. And so my interaction was not just with him. I needed to know his family. I needed to know his friends. I needed to know his cousins, the individuals that he hung out with, where he went, how he, mm. you know, all of those different things about this guy. Just that's one person on my wow. caseload. And so with a general caseload, you know, we carried roughly, it was like 99 to one with a general caseload. Uh, wow. So, so you need to know all those different aspects, as opposed to, you know, law enforcement going on the street. You make contact with this guy if he committed a crime. You know, you arrest this guy. You're not concerned about who his mom is, who his dad is, mm. you know, who his cousins are, all this kind of stuff. How does he tie into the gang situation? How how deep does it go in his family? You know, all of those different things. So. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you really can't get trained for. Hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you you can go to an academy and they can tell you uh, this is this is how you kind of want to do this. These are the things you need to know. But a lot of that is going to be based on your ability to communicate, hmm. your ability to find this information out or talk to people and get them uh, comfortable enough to share with you about their history, about where he's been, where they've been, and all those kinds of things. If you can't build a professional rapport, in that aspect with the family and you know that my job would have been you know I wouldn't mm. I would not have been able to do it um, so <clears throat> so training wise um, for what we were doing you know they gave us the basics as, as Scott was saying <laughs> report writing you know mm. laws of rules and laws of arrest uh, you know all of those different things that go in how to you know fill out a warrant you know mm -hmm. all, all of those different yeah. things um, that's the stuff you need, but but hmm. you're gonna cut your teeth when you get on the job, and is they it, stack that caseload in front of you and say, "Review your files, go meet with these guys, hmm. find out who he is, track him in the community, all of those things." Is there a is there? Man, I have to imagine like with so much of that being like on the job training, where it's like jazz, it's it's improvisation, mm -hmm. you know, as you're oh, working absolutely. with the public. Th is does that look like our our young officers paired with experienced officers in like an apprenticeship kind of thing like is that a thing yeah because i'm like they have what's that called seems a, like that would make sense yeah. but and it, it, it it's called a field training officer program or fto program and okay. almost across the board in any law enforcement agency within within our prison system things like that you have an fto period where an older officer agent whatever is is you know, taking the new person that's coming out and that person's usually on a probationary period for roughly a year and they're walking them through all the nuances, nuances of what book looks like looks a lot different or can look a lot different than what's out in the real mm. world. So that happens. Um, 
but a lot of times, you know, I, I was thinking back to uh, what we were talking about in Philippians this morning, that, you know, the the life, or not the lifeblood, but the trajectory of a, of a servant or a slave, you know, really depends on who their master is. And I'm mm. not calling an FTO the master, <laughs> but how that officer ends up is, it's huge on how is that FTO, who do they train them? Are they Are they being trained by a Jeff who understands that it's not just running in, go, give me your name, date, and birth, and then let's move on. It's building a professional rapport with people. And a lot of times that just comes with years on the job. Mm. And guys understanding that, um, and this is essential for law enforcement, and, and really good professional police officers get this, is that the other person that you're interacting with is a person just like you are. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that is what we continue to have to push everybody to. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Brian Loritz, I've been spending a lot of time listening to oh, yeah. Brian Loritz, Vadi mm-hmm. Bocham, um, the BD. Uh, Anabwele. Anabwele, yeah. yeah. Um, I just, think I butchered that, but. I know, it was, it was we close. probably <laughs> both did. <laughs> men, of, men of God that I highly respect who recognize that the primary reconciliation we need is between us and Jesus first, us mm. and God uh, first right. through Jesus. These men, they we're gonna stand, you know, we're gonna sit at the feet of Jesus one day in heaven together. I've just desired to go help me understand what's framing in where you're coming from. Mm. And and within all of that, Dr. Brian Lord said something that was very helpful. There was there was a lot that I would push back on with him. I'd love to sit around a table like that and, and dissect this. I'll call love, him later. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> love what he said though. And he has this great phrase and I will I will go, I I, I think that is our that's our point that we stay anchored to. He's, he's he says proximity breeds empathy. Mm. And I go, proximity breeds empathy, it brings it breeds understanding. And with all that I say this is that when you recognize that the person that you're dealing with in law enforcement, you, you respond to whatever call you are just as capable of, of making that same choice as that person did, given the right set of circumstances. If you realize that that is just another image bearer of God sitting across from you, that that changes how you respond to them. That was re- something really interesting. You said, okay, so, so from 10 years old until 18, I lived in the inner city and impoverished neighborhood. Um, and we had law enforcement officers who walked a beat mm. in our neighborhood. Mm. And we knew them. And they interacted with the kids. Yeah. And they came awesome. and sat next to the guys by the basketball court. And we talked. We, we'd say we chopped it up. So <laughs> we sat there and we <laughs> nice. were chopping it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and so we had these conversations. And you got to see them as real people, not just this guy that drives by in his car, yeah. chases somebody, arrests them, and whatever. But they walked a beat in our neighborhood, and we mm. knew them. And we would go up and say, hey, what's up, Johnny? You know, O'Brien was this this one guy that really stood out to me. Big, just buffed out guy, red hair, <laughs> and his name was O'Brien. And <laughs> a lot of Irish background yeah, in there, right? a little Irish That's in awesome. there, you know. And uh, but But I just remember that guy. I remember his face, and I remember him uh you know interacting with him and i remember them standing there talking with us twirling their sticks like the old you know the guys used to do back in the day when they had this the straight batons Mm -hmm. yep and uh yeah um but they were they were part of the neighborhood in a sense Mm. um you know i don't i don't believe they actually lived there i i didn't know where they lived but they were they were interacting with the community Mm. they were out there yeah 
and uh, yeah. and so it, it kind of made things a little bit different than policing is now. The, uh, the idea of community mm. policing now is 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 a lot different <clears throat> than it used to be. So so I, I think that adds to uh, the disconnect between yeah. law enforcement Absolutely. and inner city inner city people. You Man. know, uh, that you just don't see them that way. Yeah. So it's a di it's a different different take. That whole proximity breeds empathy thing is mm -hmm. huge, you know. And one of the things, I and I'll wrap us up here. We could sit here all night, you know. This has been awesome. But, like, one of the things, why, the reason why I wanted to bring you guys here is to, was to bring in proximity some voices of law enforcement yeah. office, of people yeah. within law enforcement who are solid Christians as well and so I'm really grateful for for you guys in all the years that you served and, and all the years that you're continuing to serve you're waiting for 50 man you're, I gotta go to 55 it'll be that, so. okay it'll be that it'll be that Monday though that yeah. you'll put it in yeah. but thank you guys so much for coming yeah. in thanks and adding your voice good. to yeah. the conversation so thanks a ton yeah no uh, that's to me that's where it all begins is mm -hmm. conversation and you know the communication where you get to understand um, the different aspects from both sides, uh, you know, Absolutely. of what's going on. And if you, if you get to that, then you can, you know, that's where the empathy comes in. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks yeah. a ton, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Scott.